take a seat. Well, this week has been somewhat of a mixture of joy and sadness, hasn't it, this week? And it's something that's been quite hard to navigate. You know, the flags have been going up and down as the week has gone on. We've had a new prime minister. For some people, that's joyful. For others, that's not so joyful. Boris Johnson, I imagine, for example, is not so pleased about that. We have a new king, uh, but that's because his mother has passed away. I imagine it's a real mixture of joy and sadness. And the book of Revelation, too, has that mixture of joy and sadness. If you know anything about the book, it's a book that contains some of the sweetest passages in the Bible. The new uh, creation section at the end, a new paradise, no tears, no suffering, no death. It's a joyful section, isn't it? The hymn section, as we go through the hymns that are sort of put all the way through the book. But it seems sometimes like half our songs are based on the songs uh, that we see there. But then it's also a book with demonic beasts and horsemen of the apocalypse and wine presses of God's wrath. It's a book of extremes, extreme joy and extreme sadness. It's also a book that has extremely different ways of looking at it. There are basically four big ways to look at the book of Revelation, and most of what you read or hear or watch comes under one of those four uh, views. You can make it all about the uh, sorry, there we go. You can make it all about the past. Uh, that's something that's all gone, all done and dusted by 70 AD. You can make it all about the future. Um, so not uh, nearly everything in Revelation is about a period of history still to come. You can make it about the whole of history between Christ's first and second coming in sort of chunks, in order, as it goes through. Or you can do that in principles to say that these are timeless truths that apply to every age through that time. And there are literally hundreds of variations and combinations of these four. We're going to take one particular line on this, but I've been reading through materials on all four views, and all of them have something to commend themselves. That's why Christians have disagreed on this uh, over the years. There are good people on all sides who have taken all those different positions. So it's okay for you guys to disagree uh, on these things. But A, let's not fall out about it. And B, let's keep it to a discussion about what the Bible actually says. Not just books that we've read about the book of Revelation, but what the book of Revelation itself actually says. And as Richard alluded to, our goal is to make Revelation slightly less difficult. I think we've managed so far in our series, we're up to chapter 10. I think we've had no isms as we've gone through. We've had no long words other than the ones that have been in the passage. And we've had no requirement to read complicated commentaries or books to understand it. What we've been saying all the way through our series so far is that what we have in Revelation is simply New Testament truth in Old Testament language. New Testament truth in Old Testament language. It is, after all, a revelation, 1 verse 1, of Jesus Christ. It's both from him and about him. It's a book about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and its implications for our life now. It's sort of though Ezekiel sort of sat down and wrote a gospel. That's the way I sort of think about it. You know, if Ezekiel was writing what we've got in the New Testament, this is how he'd say it. So we should expect to see things that we already know as we look through the book. Things that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, but maybe put in a strange and symbolic way. 
So it's using Old Testament imagery to tell New Testament truth. And that's what we've been seeing. So first of all, our first heading this morning is previously in Revelation. I'm just going to give you basically where we've got up to in the book. The book starts with a vision of Jesus Christ. And we noted at the time that this chapter is helpful for understanding how the book works. The imagery used in chapter 1 is of Jesus, but here it's imagery from the Old Testament. It's partly the image of Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, and it's partly Daniel's vision of a man in Daniel 10. So what we have is someone who looks a bit like God and a bit like a man, a sort of God-man. And he's dressed as a priest, and he's tending to the lamps in the heavenly temple. Except the lampstands, we're told, are actually churches. And we don't have to guess about that, because actually, helpfully, the book of Revelation keeps telling us things like this all the way through. So Revelation 1 verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So with things like that, we just don't have to guess. We're just told what they are. And helpfully, Revelation does this as we go through, though not always in the places where you really wish that it had. And what follows then is seven letters to seven churches that are now in Turkey. Seven very different churches, despite their close geographical location. And we spend time, quite a bit of time, showing that they're not chronological. It's not like we begin with the first one and then work through history. They're not describing ages of the churches, because that would put us all in Laodicea. And whilst it might feel like that in the West, that's not the state of the church globally. We saw how all of them can apply to the different situations that we have in churches. Instead, there are lessons here for churches and Christians down through all the ages. Whatever situation we're in, the seven churches have something to say to us. And seven in Revelation, as we have seen all the way through, has to do with completeness and wholeness and holiness and perfection. The seven churches then speak to the whole church. That's why there's seven of them. Chapter four sets the scene for the rest of the book. The church and all creation are around the throne of God, sort of in God's orbit. I'm sorry, there's the churches. Around the orbit, we built up this picture with the imagery that we had in that chapter. They're all there serving God's purposes for the world. But God says that there's a big plan that risks being thwarted. He has a sealed scroll, and with it, written in it, are the plans that he has for the world. And no one is found worthy to open it and enact what is found in it. Until John is told of the Lion of Judah, when he looked round, he sees a lamb, though not a lion, looking as though he'd been slain, with seven horns on his head, uh, all powerful, seven uh, completely covered with eyes, all seeing. The Lord Jesus is the one who was worthy to open the scroll and enact God's purposes and plans for the world. Notice, though, that that's somebody that we've already talked about. We've already talked about Jesus. We saw him as the God-man in the priest uh, attire in chapter 1. So we've got the same person here, but a different angle, a different perspective on the same person. And we'll see this lots as we go through. The next chapters deal with the effects of breaking the seals. This is when we get conquest, famine, war, disease, pictured as horsemen sent to unsettle the world, which we saw mark our age. We then see martyred saints who are calling out for justice from heaven, who are then told to wait. Then the beginning of the end as men and women seek to hide from God and call the rocks to fall on them. Before the final seal, though, there's an interlude, and we see what's happening to God's people during this time. 
Chapter 7 sees God sealing his people, keeping them safe through this period. John is told about a specific number of people from specific tribes of Israel. But again, when he looks round, he sees something different, an innumerable multitude from every nation under heaven. Same idea, two different angles. That's what we see. So that's the ceiling. Oh, there we go, the multitude. The final seal is broken in chapter 8, and the world ends as God's wrath is poured out in response to the prayers of the saints. And then, like Groundhog Day, we go back to the start again. Everything resets and we restart. We get similar uh, things happening as with the seals, but this time they're pictured as seven trumpets to warn the world of what's to come. Creation is undone with the first four trumpets, affecting the land, the seas, the rivers, and the sky. A third, a chunk, is being knocked out of each one of those each time. And then we see the spiritual side of what's going on as God's judgment is pictured like an army of locusts from the book of Joel, but with demonic features, satanic oppressive forces used to torment the earth. The chapter ends then with the sixth trumpet blasting, sending plagues of fire and smoke and sulfur on the earth. And this is how chapter 9 finished, chapter 9 verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or uh, hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Despite all the suffering, despite all the warnings, humankind has not turned to God. Instead, they've doubled down on their idols. Despite the megaphone to rouse the sleeping world, the world is sleepwalking still to destruction. And we're left at the end of chapter 9 thinking, is there no hope? Is there nothing we can do? Well, that brings us to our passage this morning. We're still in this trumpet section uh, that we've been looking at. So we're on to seven trumpets. We're still in that. But this is a sort of aside, an interlude to tell us what is happening elsewhere. So uh, just going to look at verses 1 to 7. Meanwhile, in the church. Let me just read to you a few of those verses again. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, seven thunders sounded. What we have here is an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We have the same thing between the sixth and seventh seal, if you remember. The interlude changed the focus away from the undoing of the world at large to show us what was happening to the church. And this interlude does exactly the same. The camera changes angle and we see what's happening elsewhere in the world, so to speak. And what we see is a giant shining angel. Now we're not told that there's wings, but it just makes it clear then that it's an angel. But it's wrapped, we're told, in a cloud. Like the Old Testament, it was a symbol of God's presence when the cloud would come into the temple. It's got a rainbow over its head, a reminder of God's promises that he made to Noah. Its face is like the sun, like Jesus was at the Transfiguration, or Moses after speaking with the Lord in Exodus. Its legs are like pillars of fire, 
a reminder of God's presence in the wilderness when he appeared as a pillar of fire. All of these things are reminders of God's covenant presence and his promises to his people. They were signs that God would be with his people and that he would keep his promises. So despite of its colossal, terrifying appearance, this angel is not an agent of destruction, but an angel of God's presence. Some commentators identify this as Jesus with the face like the sun and the glowing legs like chapter one. But Jesus is no angel and the description doesn't match perfectly anyway. Better to think of this a bit more like the angel of the Lord, shining with God's glory, signifying God's presence. And since angels are messengers, that's literally what the word angel means, this angel has a message. And if you think about it, that's quite normal in the New Testament, isn't it? In fact, in the New Testament, I think angels that are comparatively rare, they get some of the best lines in the New Testament, don't they? Matthew 1:20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or Luke chapter 2, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Or then finally Matthew 28. And behold there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Shining angels bring great messages. That's what we discover in the Bible. And this one is no different. But interestingly, it's not the message that he speaks. We're told that he speaks with seven thunders. But then look what we're told in verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, see, look what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The seven thunders are spoken by the angel, but they're not written down. Now, when something is sealed in the Bible, it means it's for a time to come. One of the interesting things about Revelation is you find out at the end that you're told, do not seal up this message. But this part of the message is sealed, meaning it's referring to a time to come probably referring to the final judgment, complete thunder, perfect thunder, seven thunders, thunder to end all thunder, thunder that will shake the very foundations of the earth. We see thunder at every ending as we go through the book. But we're told that this belongs to the time of the seventh trumpet, which we haven't had yet. Again, another indication that this is the final judgment that we're talking about, the last trumpet. But that's not the message that's passed on to John. The end itself is not what John is to proclaim. There is a message that's passed on to John, and it's one that the angel has in his hand. There we go, he's on the earth and the sea. Just a little scroll in his hand. And this scroll, we're told, is open. It's open for all the world to see. And so our, our last point, the Global Gospel Commission. Let me read to you verses 8 to 11. 
Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John is told to eat the little scroll. And this is almost a word-for-word repeat of what happens to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel's chapters 2 and 3. It's so close that it's worth reading. Listen as we go through, I'm going to read it to you. We'll play a sort of game of spot the difference. See what you can spot that's different in Revelation from what we read in Ezekiel. I think I got it up on the screen. Here we go. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, those whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because the house of Israel has a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Did you spot some of the differences as we went through? There are some similarities, aren't there? Just like John, Ezekiel is handed a scroll and told to eat it. It too is sweet in his mouth. And then he too is told to preach it to the people that he is sent to. But notice the differences. No angel with the face like the sun. Though Ezekiel Wungs gets close with the description of God with a rainbow and the like. It's sweet in the mouth for both, but bitter in the stomach for John. There's a sad side to what John has to say. Ezekiel is told specifically to restrict his ministry to Israel. John, on the other hand, is told in verse 11 to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The focus shifts from Israel, who wouldn't listen, to the nations. And this should give us hope. The reason Ezekiel wasn't sent to those, was sent to those people, wasn't sent to the nations, is because in Ezekiel 3 verse 6, they would listen. They would actually hear the message. If the message was sent to the nations, then they would turn to God. Well, John's ministry here is to be an international one. And we'd expect so. This group that he preaches to in Revelation 5, they were the group that was uh, ransomed by God, whose blood, uh, Christ's blood, was shed to ransom them from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That uh, the multitude that no one could count 
around the throne is made up of this group from all those different languages and peoples and uh, uh, nations. In other words, the nations are going to hear this message. The ends of the earth is now the goal. Not that Israel is forgotten, but she's no longer the focus of the mission. The nations are. But it's not all going to be repentance and revival among the nations. Remember that despite the trumpet calls of chapters 8 and 9, despite the physical and spiritual sufferings there to wake up mankind, we're told that ultimately they did not repent. Remember also that actually in the next chapter, it's going to be the peoples, tribes, and languages, and nations who refuse burial to the Lord's servants. But John is given this task anyway to preach about and to the nations. So what is this imagery showing us then? Well, two things. Number one, that the people of God declare the plans of God for the world. The scroll that he's given is like a miniature version of the scroll in chapter 5 that only Christ was worthy to open. God's plans and purposes for the world that could only be enacted through Christ. That's what it was in chapter 5. But now this miniature scroll is given to John to eat and proclaim. These two are God's plans and purposes for the world that can only be enacted through Christ. In other words, he's given the gospel and all it entails. While the trumpets are sounding, God's people are to get on with preaching the gospel. We'll see this more next week. The scroll is open. We're to digest it and preach it. So our job while our world is under judgment is not to try and make the judgment less severe. It's not to try and mitigate what God is doing. It's not to try and undo what God is doing in the world. Sometimes when you hear Christians speak, it almost sounds as though our job is to, to send back the horsemen or silence the trumpets or seal back up the scroll. But no, our job before the final trumpet is to proclaim. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't show compassion to those hurt in the world that we live in. Those suffering the effects of spiritual breakdown, societal breakdown, breakdown of the natural order. It doesn't mean that we don't try and be good stewards of the planet that God has given us. We are to care for the planet that we live on. But we don't make that the purpose of the church. God decides the purpose of the church because it's his church. And we're not free to try and change its purpose in the name of relevance or popularity. It's true 21st century people don't like being told to repent and believe the gospel. They don't like hearing the contents of the scroll. But do you really think first century people did? Next week, we're going to hear about prophets slain in the streets for preaching the gospel. And we know that at least one of the churches that John is writing to had had someone killed for proclaiming Christ. John here is writing to keep them testifying to keep them proclaiming, to keep them preaching the gospel. He's not writing to ask them to tone it down a bit because people might not like it, or to update their message to make it a bit more Roman friendly. God has given them a purpose and they're to stick to it. They are to preach, proclaim, prophesy God's word, God's plans for the world. So if this was another New Testament passage, it would be like the Great Commission. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or think about Paul's commission, where he's told by the blindingly glorified Lord Jesus to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. Or Timothy's commission, where he's told by Paul in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do you see in nearly all those cases, there's a sort of bigging up of the authority and then the command to preach. And that's what we see here in Revelation. And whilst we're not one of the 12, or Paul, or Timothy, or John, we share that same mission to proclaim the gospel. We share that same commission. We too have been past that little scroll, the gospel, and told to preach. That's the first thing we see from the imagery. And then the second thing that the imagery shows us is that though God's plans are glorious and good, it's not always a pleasant task. It would be lovely, wouldn't it, if every time we preached the gospel, that everybody that we preached it to believed and put their trust in Jesus. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? But that isn't the case. And so there is a bitter side to the task that we're given. As we warn of God's coming judgment, not everybody will turn away from it. And some people will hate us for sharing that message. So if this was another New Testament passage, it would be 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. The words that we have are sweet. The gospel is glorious, but the outcome to some is death. And it's right and normal that that should turn our stomachs bitter. It's a bit like what we were talking about at the beginning. It's a mixture of joy and sadness. A joyful message, free forgiveness through Christ in our place. Eternal life with him forever by just putting our faith in Jesus. And it is an occasion of great joy when people turn to Christ. We're told that the angels in heaven rejoice when one person puts their trust in Christ. But it's also an occasion of sadness when the warnings we give go unheeded and someone doesn't turn to Christ. And in that sense, we have that mixture, don't we? We proclaim salvation and judgment. We have that joy and that sadness. And we need to do that, even though it might turn our stomach, as John is told to do. So this morning, let's heed the message of the angel that we see here and all his authority, as John did, and keep going with preaching the gospel. Keep preaching, keep proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Even if folk won't listen, as we'll see next time, let's be those who are faithful to the call to preach the message as we've been given. And let's pray that God would give us the strength to do so. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the message of the gospel. Father, thank you that it is sweet. Father, thank you that it is glorious and good. And help us, Father, we pray as your people, to take that message to our needy world. Father, help us when our, our stomach feels bitter, 
when folk uh, don't turn um, to you when we proclaim the gospel. Father, help us to put our trust back in you, to turn back to you. And Father, find solace in that. But Father, help us stay faithful to you and faithful to the message. In Jesus' name, amen.